His disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands, as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't, do you, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, You skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give God what I would have given you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd. And his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either? He asked. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, It is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. This gets up. This is God's word. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Again, if I haven't met you before and you're joining us for the first time, welcome. My name is Char, and I'm one of the pastors here at Refuge. So we are continuing our studies in Mark. Now, for me, Mark has been just so incredibly poignant and appropriate for the season. There's been a few times where I've been tempted to maybe kind of change the program and do some topical teachings, but man, Mark just seems like it's just hitting it on the nose again and again. And I think it is because Mark is written for disciples. We were talking about this recently. It's literally a roadmap uh, on how to be a disciple of Jesus. And so I think in a time where there is a lot of confusion about what's going on in the world, a lot of confusion about what's right, what's wrong, what's true, and what's false, uh, confusion about who we are and what we're to be doing as individuals, as the people of God, as representatives of the kingdom of God, 
Mark's gospel is this incredible tool, a roadmap for us in how to follow the way of Jesus. We've also been saying, though, that Mark is about answering the question, who is Jesus? And Mark is uh, painting this incredible picture, but it's actually a, like a mystery. It's a cryptic picture. We've been talking a lot about this. It's a book of mystery. It's filled with mysterious references to Jesus and his identity. Mark really doesn't like to come out and say it. Rarely does he quote the Old Testament, though he is a master of the biblical text. But he tells the story of how God is cryptically and mysteriously present in bringing his kingdom on earth through the suffering, through the crucified and through the resurrected Messiah, Jesus. Mark, through his portrayal of Jesus, is provoking the most important question that has ever been put to humanity, and that is, who is Jesus? And so we're going to see that even again this morning. So, once again, we find the Pharisees and scribes are taking issue with Jesus' disciples and their lack of observance and practice of the traditions of the elders. And this chapter kind of breaks down neatly. And the religious leaders come to Jesus, he addresses them, then he turns and he addresses the crowd, and then later he addresses his disciples privately. So we're going to look at it kind of in those three stages. So first, the Pharisees approach him, they take issue with him again because he is not observing their tradition. And I had a thought as I was studying this passage. If disciples are those who are being with Jesus, those who are becoming like Jesus because they're practicing his way of life, they're doing what he did. As we've seen, foraging on the Sabbath, eating as they're walking through the fields, not fasting when everyone else was supposed to be fasting, and eating with unwashed hands. They were doing this most likely because this was learned behavior from being with Jesus. And Jesus basically tells the religious leaders he doesn't subscribe to their tradition. He's not like, no, I'm not doing that. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm here to do. I don't observe your tradition or hold to your interpretation. Now, first, Jesus says that the religious leaders' zeal for the tradition of the fathers, which was a rabbinic commentary on Mosaic law, he said it actually nullified or made void God's law, scripture. It would be good to note that this rabbinic tradition added hundreds of laws to the already burdensome Mosaic law, and in many cases required all of Israel, everyone, to observe a rigid system of washing and ceremonies that were meant only for the Levitical priests when they served in the temple and worship in the temple. Now, Jesus' words here bring a serious accusation against those, these leaders who claim to have a high view of law and scripture. He says, you make void, empty, God's word. Listen to this. Isaiah, in his 55th chapter, it's a powerful passage about God's unstoppable word. This is what God says through Isaiah. He says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me void or empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 
how fascinating that here Jesus accuses the religious leaders of making God's word void, empty, taking away its intention and power. Uh, this is a, a powerful accusation against those who, again, claim to have a high view of Scripture, claim to be the ones leading Israel in worship of God and observance of Mosaic law. It's wild to think, but in these people's zeal for holiness and purity, they actually miss the whole goal. Now, remember, we've been talking about this. The goal or purpose of the Pharisees' zeal, their passion— is the messianic kingdom. They're not bad people in the way that we traditionally think of bad people, like they, they want to ruin people's lives. They're out to um, destroy people. That's not really what these guys are about. Their idea is if the nation of Israel keeps up Levitical priest-type holiness, then Messiah will come. So they're like the watchdogs, the Gestapo of the tradition of the elders or the Mosaic law, making sure everyone stays in line so that Messiah will come. And here is the irony, once again, in Mark's gospel. The Messiah is right in front of them. And they are constantly resisting him, not listening to him, and eventually they will kill him. They've already been plotting how they can destroy him. So the hope that they claim to be all about, the one they claim to be zealous for, is right in front of them, but they miss it. Not only that, Jesus says they have, bl they have blocked the way of God's word, what God is trying to do, what God is accomplishing. They've blocked Jesus at every step and sought to make his word and ministry void. This is incredible. It's incredible the irony here that in religious zeal, they are completely going against the work that God is trying to do. Now, at this point, Jesus turns to the crowd and calls their attention to what he's about to say. And he says, it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Now, Jesus, with one sentence, undoes all of the regulations of the tradition of the elders. And Mark makes this note here. By this statement, Jesus made all foods clean. He basically says, what is outside of you isn't what causes sin, is not what defiles you, but it's what comes out of your heart. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the idea of clean and unclean and the story of the woman in Jairus' daughter. And we saw how in the early laws of Israel, there were strict holiness guidelines that were required in approaching God, especially in worship at the temple. Sin was defilement, but also sickness, uncleanness, and even improper hygiene were pictures of and types of death and decay and could be brought and could not be brought into God's holy space. Now, um, I was talking to my dad today on the phone, and he right now ha he has an infection, so we had to go get antibiotics. He's been in a lot of pain. And we were just talking about how, man, like in those days, many times infections would just kill you. If you got a bladder infection or, you know, some kind of an intestinal infection, you 
most likely wouldn't even know it, just feel awful, and then maybe a few days later, you would be dead. And so it's no wonder that so much of these diseases and hygienic practices or improper hygiene were connected with death because most of them ended in death. You know, the lifespan in those days was, was very short. It was surprising when anyone would live to something like they do today in their 70s or even into their 80s. So, in the scriptures, this uncleanness was a type of death. It was a type of decay. It was a, a picture of sin. And we, remember, we know this from scripture. God is life. Death and decay have no place in his presence. He is too holy. He's too good to behold these things. But we saw how in the prophets, and specifically in Isaiah and Ezekiel, we have these incredible visions where all of that is reversed, where the coal from the temple touches Isaiah. Instead of him making the temple unclean because of his sin, he is made clean by the temple. And then later, Ezekiel, living water flows from the temple in his vision, and it heals the brokenness and the defilement of the land. And we saw how there was this picture of this reverse thing happening where now what was holy was making what was impure holy. And all of this was a picture to what God would do. The cleansing was a foreshadow of God himself. The temple housed, of course, the holy presence of God. And now in Jesus, God's holy presence had come among humans. And in the way, in the same way, as we saw, as we see with Isaiah and the temple or the temple and the land, Jesus is cleansing and absorbing all the disease and death in his path. It was a picture of what he would do. Now, to kind of wrap all of this up, to quote from N.T. Wright, this is what he says. He says, the scriptures spoke of purity and set up codes as signposts to it. Jesus is now offering the reality. When you arrive at the destination, you don't need the signposts anymore, not because they were worthless, but precisely because they were correct. All of these holiness laws and codes were pointing us to our need to be cleansed, our need to be made whole, our need to be rescued and redeemed from sin that leads to death, from defilement that leads to sin that leads to death. But now we have the sin eater. We have the one who can cleanse us and make us pure. So we don't need these signs anymore. They've been done away with. They've been set aside because the reality is here. And now at this point, Jesus speaks with his disciples. And that's a fascinating part of this section. The last bit, Jesus unpacks only for disciples. So he's talked to the religious leaders and he's set them straight. And he's talked to the crowds and he's cleared up a lot of confusion over the years about what uncleanness actually is all about. But now privately he speaks to his disciples. And they asked him about what he meant by this. And so Jesus says, can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart. It passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. And by saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's 
heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within, and they are what defile you. First of all, I think it needs to be said that when the Bible speaks about the heart, it is speaking about the inner person or who you actually are. It is the the seat of the individual, the controlling uh, desires, right? So that's one thing that we need to know. But I think another thing that we need to add to that is we can't make this mistake about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying that what we do on the outside, what we do with our physical bodies doesn't matter as long as we have good hearts or good intentions. That is actually dualism and not Christianity. What Jesus is saying is that if we only worry and are concerned with outer purity, doing the right thing, there is no real healing, and we've missed the point. The key is to get at the root, at the heart of the issue, and from there, character and action flow. If you deal with the the actual person, the seat of desires, If you get there, then the outside will be clean. He says a lot of this kind of stuff in the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about a tree. Uh, A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. uh, He talks about the purity or singleness of the eye and so on and so forth. And so I think one thing that we can conclude from this of what Jesus is saying here is you cannot make up for a bad heart by doing sacrifice. See, that's what the religious leaders in essence were doing. They weren't worried about the heart. They weren't worried about the inner person. All they were concerned about was religious ceremonies. Or another way to put this is you can't cover your injustice, unrighteousness, and mercilessness by doing sacrifice. Ultimately, this cannot change you. And what Jesus is trying to get across, especially to, your, to the disciples, is, is that it's a heart problem. We need a new heart. We need a change of affection. The problem is the heart. And this is what God is constantly saying, even way back in the Old Testament, in the prophets. There's this one passage where God is speaking to the nation. It's in the book of Amos, and he says, you've missed the whole point. I don't actually care about sacrifice and ritual. I don't care about the blood of bulls and goats. You think this is what I'm about? You think that this is really what I want? It was all intended to make you just and merciful. I'll I'll actually read it. I love the translation from the message. It says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I am fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I am sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know, do you even know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That is 
all I want. That's from Amos 5, 21 through 24. And later, God would speak through Jeremiah and Ezekiel about the day when he would give his people new hearts. Have you ever been to a church service and maybe that church that you're attending has decided to do a building project? And so they decide we're going to teach through the book of Nehemiah because it's about rebuilding the wall. So we're talking about a building project. So we're going to do this book and we're going to do this building project. And I mean, fine, whatever. People can do that. You can use the Bible to say all sorts of stuff. Do you know that the intention of the book of Nehemiah and Ezra is ultimately to say this, you can rebuild Jerusalem, you can rebuild the temple, and you can reinstitute the sacrifices. But in the end, what do we see? The people have gone back to intermarrying with the nations around them, and they have gone back to idolatry. And what it is actually pointing to is the need for a new heart. You can do all of this. You can take care of the outside. You can rebuild it all. But what is needed is a new heart. And God says this in Jeremiah. He says, the day is coming. I will give them, speaking of his people, a new heart. A heart to know that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Now here in in Jeremiah, we get the understanding of the need for a new heart. All religious ritual and sacrifice is ultimately endless and insufficient without the new heart that comes from the Spirit of God. We must be cleansed from within. But listen to Ezekiel. Ezekiel makes it even clear as to what God is after, what God will do. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And then you will be careful to obey my rules. Now, notice here in Ezekiel, there's more than Jeremiah. It says God will cleanse the outside with washing. Then he will give the new heart a new person within, which leads to walking in his statutes and obeying his rules. What is being pictured here then is a whole person cleansing or what the Sermon on the Mount points to, a holistic righteousness, a whole person righteousness, because both outward and inward character are important to God. Remember, it's not dualism, it's Christianity. A heart, a whole person that is devoted to God will show that devotion in everyday practices of life. It's not just a Sunday thing, a religious thing. It's not just a thing that we do when we're around people that love God and know God. We do it with everyone, everywhere. We live out this new life. When we read the book of James, this is what he's constantly getting after. He says either a spirituality that is only inward and has no outward manifestation or a spirituality that's only outward and has no inward life. Both are bogus. Both are bankrupts without, excuse me, one without the other. An example of how we do this today is we do justice, but we ignore being just. It's like we treat justice like a missions trip. Like, okay, I'm going to go do justice, but it doesn't affect the rest of my life. It's like a weakened warrior type of justice. 
We condemn sex trafficking, raise money to help people out of it while indulging in pornography. We lament child trafficking and abortion, and yet we're silent on adoption and foster care. Or, the other side, we condemn pornography, but care nothing for the sex slave, girl or boy. Or there is the virtue signaler type, right? We go to social media and we like some social cause on Facebook. We repost something on Instagram. We post a personal rant at injustice and think that is sufficient for doing righteousness and justice. No, God wants all of it. All of it. He wants it all. And the good things I've just listed here, it's not that they're bad to do those things. They are insufficient. God wants holistic justice. He wants holistic righteousness. He wants holistic mercy. Whole person. God wants to make us into people of character. God wants to make us into people who actually do mercy, who do kindness and service, feeding and helping, caring and healing, because that's the kind of people we are. It's the kind of people we have become because of God's spirit in us, because he has washed us on the outside and he's given us new hearts and he's put his spirit within us. And this is the work that Jesus is here to do. And so I think when we step back from what's actually going on here, though Mark never tells us, he never answers this, the question we ask, well, who is Jesus? Why is he talking about all this? Who is Jesus? He is the giver of the new heart. He's the one who can bring us into the holistic righteousness of the kingdom of God that the prophets foretold. So in closing, let's bring this home. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for us as disciples, as followers of Jesus? Well, let's talk about the religious leaders again. Here, standing before these religious scholars, experts, biblical professionals, is the very one the scriptures pointed to all along. And they can't see him. They can't hear him. He can't get through the hardness of their hearts. Their insistence upon the old ways, the way of tradition, blocks them from seeing. And ultimately, they are resisting the one who is here to do the very thing they claim to want. Purity, goodness, new hearts. If you were to ask them, what are they after? They're after that new heart, that new covenant. That's what they're after. And yet, here they are resisting, seeking to make void the ministry of Jesus, the bringer of the new heart. Now, as I was studying this, I was, I was just struck by this. What is it about human nature that we will give ourselves completely to a man-made construct, a creed, a constitution, a political party, a career, a dream, a lifestyle, a health regimen, with all the fervor of the most religious zealot. I mean, how do you know somebody's a vegan? Because they tell you within the first two minutes of talking to you. How do you know somebody's gluten-free? Because they told you as you sat down for, you know, a cup of coffee with them. I mean, we... we are passionate about these things. We have zeal for these things that we think define us with all the fervor of the most religious zealot, yet the commands of God, the word of God to do justly, 
to love mercy, to walk with him in humility, we leave untried and wanting. Now, the things I mentioned, creeds, constitution, political party, a career, a dream, a lifestyle, a health regimen, right? Exercise, none of these things I mentioned are wrong. None of them. They can be incredible tools, helpful guides, guidelines for our lives. But they cannot cleanse you. They cannot. And though they might be able to make you healthy, they might give you a great track for your life, a good model to follow or walk in for a season, they cannot redeem you. They cannot buy you back. And when you fail them, they will not forgive you. They are merciless masters. They do not love you. They will not die for you. And yet, we give our loyalty and allegiance, our passion to almost everything except the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom. I mean, honestly, it is a tragedy and a mockery to our king, to our redeemer, that at this moment, evangelical Christians are better known for our conspiracy theories and political opinions than for the gospel, the way of Jesus, and our kingdom work. This should not be so. We have the truth of God. You know that the Bible says, Paul says this to Timothy, that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. That that's what we are to be about, the truth of the gospel, of what God has done for this world. And the problem is we are getting so distracted by conspiracies. We are getting so distracted by what everyone else in our country is distracted by, politics. I love what John Tyson said, and I know I said it before, but I think we need to keep reminding ourselves of this. The real conspiracy is satanic. And its goal is to get you to focus on global meta whatevers that you can do almost nothing about and neglect the place of prayer, the word, and sacrificial love of neighbor. Some of you are claiming, though, oh, no, my passion, I'm passionate about the Constitution and this because I love my neighbor. Really? Have you told your neighbor about Jesus, the one that can give him a new heart? the one that can redeem them, the one that loves them and purchased them with his own blood. Do you really love your neighbor? Because if we did, we would tell them the most important thing. We would tell them the truth. That's what we're to be about. We have so much more to offer than conspiracy theories and talking points for political parties. We have the gospel. Jesus alone can give us what our hearts truly need, what we long for, wholeness and goodness, righteousness, justice, the kingdom of God. And he gave his very self, his lifeblood to give it to us. And yet again, we give our loudest cries, our passionate protests to man-made traditions. Church, do we think this is any different than the prophets? Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, he's calling to Israel. You have left, you have left Yahweh. You have attached yourself to the nations. You think they'll save you. They won't save you. Only the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. We give our loudest cries, our passionate protests to man-made traditions, pointing people to observe these. 
But our call as disciples is to point to Jesus and not to put any obstacle in the way of him. The world needs Jesus. The world needs Jesus. And at this moment, church, people are afraid. People are scared out of their minds. Everything they trusted and everything that brought them identity and security has been taken from them. They have no hope. They fear that it's the end of the world. I have heard the word apocalypse from non-Christians more than I have heard it in my life. And that's not even what the Bible means when it says the word apocalypse, but that is a whole other Bible study. Okay, but the world needs Jesus. Their lives have been upturned. What an incredible opportunity for the gospel. We need good news in the world today. That is what the world needs. And remember, as we looked at the other week, will disciples help or hinder the work that Jesus wants to do? He wants to shepherd people. He wants to feed them. He wants to make the wilderness into a garden for them. Will we introduce them to Jesus? Will we bring them to Jesus? Will we bring Jesus to them? Or will we bring them man-made traditions and observances? Is this what they will know us for? Let us return to the Lord. Let us return to the lover of our souls and let us faithfully follow and represent Jesus to a world that needs him so desperately. Church, will you pray with me that the Lord would do this in our hearts? So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask again, we ask again that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Open our eyes and ears to the ways that we have shut ourselves off to the hope We've been blinded by what's going on in the world to the hope and redemption that can only be found in Jesus. And as you open up our ears and open up our eyes and, and restore us to you, Lord, make us channels of grace. Make us channels of peace and good news to those around us. Lord, we don't want to ignore the state of the world, but we want to remember our call to be a people who point away from man-made solutions to our only hope in this world. Jesus, the giver of the new heart and the new creation. And so, Lord, lead us by your grace. We ask this in your name. Amen.